I've been coaching youth sports for now about 20 years. I started when I was in high school with a six- and seven-year-old church league basketball team. And, and we, we were good. I just, I'm just telling you, it was the coaching because I know so much about basketball. As you can tell, I was a standout basketball player back in my day. Anyway, that's all a lie. <clears throat> but, but we had a good time, and, and that was the first team that I coached, a six- and seven-year-old church basketball team. Fun kids. They're, of course, now in their mid-20s, which, uh, as you well know, you look back on stuff like that and you think, my, how time passes. And since then, I've coached a variety of teams, uh, mostly baseball teams of different ages and different skill levels. And, of course, now I'm, I'm knee-deep in coaching t-ball and baseball and all the things that that my kids want to play. But one thing that I have learned, aside from tremendous, uh, the tremendous need for patience with children of that age, but one thing I've learned, unfortunately, is to question the motives of the people that get involved with stuff like that. I don't know about you, but I often wonder when I'm coaching a team or I'm around other folks who are coaching, I often wonder, why, why really are you here? What really do you want from me and from this? I mean, what's your motivation? Why, why are you here? You know, it's really frustrating to deal with people whose motives you just don't really know. Maybe they're a little hidden. And you've dealt with that. You've seen people at work and you think, why is she being so nice to me? Something's going on. Why did he get here early this morning with a smile on his face? He never does that. What? What's going on? And maybe it's been at a social function or community function. You think, why are they really hosting this? And why did they make an appearance? Well, what, what's, what's behind it? Maybe, maybe for you, you've seen something on a social media outlet, Facebook or Twitter, and you just get cynical. You say, you know what? Posted that picture and said, this is an awful picture of me. Only to get people to say, oh, no, it's not. I love that picture of you. You look so great. Maybe you've dealt with ulterior motives. They drive us crazy. People with ulterior motives drive us nuts. You know, it'd be better if they just come out and were honest and say, here's why I'm here. I'm in it for me. Just letting you know up front, everything I'm doing is for me. Just getting it on the table. Now, we, we, particularly in the southern part of the United States, we can't come out and do that because that's not gracious and it certainly wouldn't be the right thing to do. But wouldn't it be great if you just knew where people stood? Because unfortunately, often by the time you figure out what their true motives are, it's too late and the damage has already been done. And I thank God, on the other hand, of looking at that, that there aren't any Christians like that. I thank God that there aren't any church members or church attenders who have ulterior motives. I thank God that everything we do in our spiritual and religious lives is absolutely from a pure heart. I mean, I praise God for that. Isn't that true? That, that was a rhetorical question. It's actually not true at all. Some of you are thinking, has he lost his mind? I know some Christians. I go to church with some people. You know what? It's everywhere, isn't it? Even in our religious and spiritual lives, those ulterior motives creep in, and they're hard to discover. We know that it's not true that, that it's absent among Christians. We know that Christians have ulterior motives. We know that church members and church attenders and and every once in a while, church people, they have ulterior motives for why we do what we do. It's so hard, but it's not anything new. We're going to see from one of the gospel writers this morning a story of a man whose spiritual life and his faith may or may not have been real, but it certainly was built upon some, 
some mixed up motives. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 8. If you've got a Bible handy, I hope you brought one. Make sure that you turn there and follow along. If you didn't bring a Bible, but you've got a smartphone or a tablet, and maybe that's what you use for your Bible, and that's fine. There's a, a code on the back of the bulletin, and Brent and I figured out just a minute ago that it works. You scan that in. The last week, apparently, we had some issues with it. But if you scan that in, it will take you to an outline, a little more detailed than what you'll see on the back of your bulletin, take you to an, to an outline, and it will have the Scripture there for you as well. So I hope either way, however you can access it, that you'll look at the Scripture this morning. You and I both know that there is a constant struggle that we have against our, our hidden, our ulterior motives. And you know that if they run rampant, they'll destroy you. You've seen, and I have seen, countless examples of, of organizations or teams or government entities or families or relationships or churches or individuals who have been ruined because of their mixed-up motives. Those kind of motives are a character assassin. And in our series called Character Assassination, I thought it, I thought it was appropriate to select a passage that deals with our motives and so look with me in Acts chapter 8, the story here of, of a guy named Simon. Now, this is not Simon Peter, though Peter will come into play in this story. This is a, a different Simon, Simon being a very common name back during that time. But this is a story about a guy named Simon whose mixed up motives will get him into some serious trouble. And the first thing that we'll see about him is that he had a following of people and then he lost it. Look with me in verse 9 of Acts chapter 8. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. So what you've got here is this guy who's an entertainer. He's got maybe some special kind of power, it appears, or maybe it's real. Certainly not from God, but they think he is a God. He, he can do things that no one else can do. It, it's magic-like. And he's able to make money from it and certainly attracts a huge following. He astounds the people, amazes them with what he can do. He, he's kind of like our, our modern-day David Copperfield kind of guy, the magician that you look at and say, how did he do that? How on earth could somebody pull that trick? That's Simon the sorcerer who appears and maybe does have some real spiritual kind of power, though demonic, at the same time, he impresses all of the people. And there's no doubt, of course, that he loved the attention that he got from it. Who wouldn't? If you're that kind of person with that magnetic personality, that being a sharp kind of person, very popular, who wouldn't enjoy the benefits of that? And that's who Simon was. You see there, he claimed to be somebody great. All the people were astounded by him, and they said, this guy has some kind of heavenly, some kind of otherworldly power. And he has this incredible following. And then everything changed in verse 12. Look at it. But when they, talking about these folks who were previously astounded by Simon, when they believed Philip, he's one of the disciples, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So here's Simon, this guy who... All the people are following. And then Philip shows up on the scene preaching the message about Jesus. The people believe what Philip is telling them. They leave Simon. They go and profess faith in Jesus Christ. They're obedient in baptism. And Simon is left standing there holding the bag. Everything that he once held has just slipped through his fingers. All because of this message about this Jewish teacher 
who supposedly was killed and raised again, and all the people flocked to the message about him and believe. Now we'll learn in a minute that Simon himself claims to have believed in Jesus, and he will follow in baptism. But, but what we learn at the end of the story, as you'll see, is that his motives for doing that are a little bit mixed up. In fact, they're a lot mixed up. You know, maybe when he started to follow Jesus, there was something genuine going on inside of him. But, but really what we find is that he's going to try to use Jesus. And he's going to try to use religion as a way to recapture this following that he lost. Think about it in your own life. What, what are the things that you previously experienced or enjoyed or got attention from or, or were good at? And what are the things that, that you once were able to use to capture the attention of people or to make money or, or to get ahead in life or things that came naturally to you? I, I want you to know this, that those things are not in and of themselves necessarily bad, but they will be things that Satan will likely tempt you with in your Christian faith. Because your old nature, even if you truly are a believer in Jesus, may want to have all those things back. Simon was that kind of guy. He once had all this attention, all this recognition, all this talent, all this gifting. And then when Jesus, the message about Jesus shows up on the scene, the people leave him and go flock to this other message. And there he is wondering, what does he matter? So if for you it was popularity, maybe once upon a time you were Mr. or Miss Popularity. I guarantee you this, that if that was your thing, if you attracted attention because of that, then you'll be tempted to be the most popular Christian you know. And being a popular Christian is sometimes an oxymoron. Sometimes you can't have both. Most of the time you probably won't be able to. But if popularity was your thing, Satan will tempt you with it again. If it was your personality, if you said, you know, I was just such a magnetic person, and people seem to be so attracted to me. And then, then I met Jesus and I'm wondering, what do I do with all this? Satan will likely tempt you to schmooze people, to, to flatter people, all in the name of Christian love, to put on a good show. If it was leadership for you, you say, you know, once people followed me. And there was once upon a time when I meant something to an organization. I guarantee you this, if leadership was your thing, Satan will tempt you with desires for power and to have your ideas recognized, and to be in control, even in the church. Maybe for you it was talent or your good looks, and certainly everybody here, of course, those good looks, right? But if that was it for you, those would be constant temptations for you to use those things, even as a Christian, to your advantage, even in religious circles and even in religious activities. Simon lost his following that he had come so to depend upon because the people believed in Jesus. And that begins the mixing of his motives. Why did he follow Jesus? Well, we're going to see that it wasn't exactly for Jesus, but this is the beginning of showing that it was for him. Look at verse 13. All the people have believed. Then Simon himself believed. It says, then even Simon himself believed. Now, folks have debated whether or not this is true faith in Christ or not. But he, he at least claims that he believes in Jesus and he will be baptized. Now, this follows all of the people leaving his camp and going over to Jesus' camp. And it's like a big pep rally. All the Samaritans are following Christ now. And it's an incredible story. So picture yourself for just a second, those of you who can, at a Billy Graham crusade. Some of you went to those years ago. I went to one. Picture yourself at a church camp. You probably remember those times. You're sitting around the campfire on the last night. Everybody's pouring their hearts out. 
Or picture yourself at a revival service. Some of you have such fond memories of times in the past where revival services lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks. Or maybe for you as a student, I had the opportunity to, to speak this past school year at Lakers for Christ. Maybe for you it's that, it's that before school Bible study. Or maybe, maybe you're a young person and maybe you went to Murray State at one point and you remember going to then the BSU and now the BCM. Picture yourself at one of those kinds of meetings, one of those kinds of experiences. The music's great, the preacher gets up, and man, he's even better than the music. And everybody seems to be touched by the Lord. There's something special that seems to be happening. Everybody's praying, the, the, the aisle is full of people. I mean, you're having to wait to get into the traffic of the aisle and, and because so many folks are coming down front to pray, to receive the Lord, to, to recommit their lives to Him. People are praising God. People are crying. It's a very emotional scene. You, you've been at something like that, I'm sure. And there you are, kind of looking around and wondering, what am I supposed to do? I, I see what's happening. I'm not sure if I'm feeling exactly the same way, but what am I supposed to do? And, and then somebody asks you, hey, will you want to go down front with me? Would you like to sign this card? Do you want to pray together? And so you jump on the bandwagon. And so, well, okay, yeah, I guess so. I guess I do. Maybe you truly do want something that night that was offered. But your motives, as you look back on it now, you kind of say, you know, I was just caught up in the moment a little bit too. I think Simon's experiencing a little bit of that. He looks around and sees all the people following this message about Jesus. And, and he said, I don't want to be the only one who's not. And it seems to be that that's the way the momentum wave is going. And so he kind of jumps on board. And people have argued, as I said, was this a real commitment to the Lord or was it not? And really, that's not the main point of this particular passage. The main point is showing us what mixed up motives for following Jesus can look like. Whether he truly believed or not, some of what he did that particular day was because everybody else was doing it. They cried on the last night at camp, around the campfire, and threw a stick in and made a commitment to go to Africa the next week. And so did he. Maybe you've been there. They, they went down front at the crusade. Everybody in his section did, and he thought, I'm not going to sit here by myself. So he got up, and he walked down front. I might meet Billy Graham, for crying out loud. You never know. Maybe he'll be the one that receives me. So he goes down front at the crusade. They signed a commitment card, and so did he. They lifted their hands and said, yeah, I want, I want that. <clears throat> and so did he. They joined the church that day, and... So did he. They showed up early for a, for a Bible study at school, so he did too. They went to the campus ministry, the BCM, on Thursday night for worship, and so did he. It's an emotional, momentous scene, and Simon joins in. I wonder this morning how many of us, at one point in time, once upon a time, got caught up in the emotion, the excitement the momentum of a particular event or occasion or emotion, whatever it may be, and said, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But when you look back upon it, you say, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure if that was a legitimate commitment or if I was just doing it because it seemed like the right thing to do in the moment and everybody else was excited and everybody else was around the campfire. And so I, I said those words too. I've heard story after story after story of people like that. It's part of the reason, honestly, why at the end of our services, I don't make a huge push to guilt you into coming down front. 
I certainly want to make it available. We, at the end of our service today, we'll have two of our deacons who will be standing here. And if you need to do any business with the Lord or have somebody pray for you, you are certainly welcome at any time. You don't need to worry about who's around you. You don't need to worry about what they're going to think or, or, or what they're already thinking. You need to do business with God. But I am not going to push you to do that because I don't want you to be like Simon and just jump on the bandwagon and say, well, that seems to be what I have to do in order to have some peace in my life, in order to get what these folks seem to have. So maybe for you it was because your family expected you to, to get baptized long ago or because everybody in your town was religious. You know, Murray's a religious town. Or maybe you felt pressure to go down front or to be emotional at camp or to crusade. And now when you look back, you see mixed motives. Simon can relate to that. Let's keep going in the story. After his baptism, Simon here is going to follow Philip around. Look at it. After he was baptized, verse 13, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. Now, this is an interesting play on words here, of course, because what did Simon used to do to the people? He astounded them. And now he himself is astounded at what he sees, amazed, blown away. He's never seen anything like this. What Philip is a part of, Simon says, I've never, I've never seen that before. And certainly he says, I couldn't do all that stuff. These are real miracles, incredible things. People being healed, I'm sure, left and right. And Simon is drawn in by these amazing things that he sees happening to the people who claim to follow Jesus. Miraculous, inexplicable things. How many stories have been told about folks who, who were, were made a promise or promised some kind of reward that if you just follow Jesus, if you just sign this card, if you just walk this aisle, if you just whatever kind of religious activity, all your dreams will come true. You know, there are people who have made millions of dollars with that message. Millions of dollars. By preaching that message, that if you just have enough faith, if, if you just give a little more, if you just serve a little more, if you just do this, this, and this, then God will love you and you will have his favor and everything will be okay. Simon looks around and he sees all these people experiencing great things and he said, well, I just could get in with that. Then apparently everything would be just fine. How many here have believed some of the people that preach that health and wealth kind of gospel. If you just believe in Jesus, then you'll never have another sickness, not even a sniffle. If you just give a little bit more, then, then you'll get back in return tenfold, hundredfold, running over, pressed down, what, it, what is it? Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. How many have believed that message, and yet your life is not health and wealth? And maybe, just maybe, you say, those are the wrong motives for following Jesus. Simon saw only the really impressive, the amazing things, and he was drawn in by it. Christianity is amazing, he says. And again, the point is not whether he truly believed or not. That can be debated, but, but we see again his mixed motives. First he loses his following, wants it back. Then he kind of jumps on the bandwagon, and now he's seeing amazing things, and he says, I want part of that. And then verse 14, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We'll get back to that in a second. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So you see Simon, of course, is there on the scene. 
He understands what's going on. He sees that, that the Samaritans are experiencing something amazing. And then he recognizes that when Peter and John show up, these two very important disciples, that then something amazing, even more so, happens among the Samaritans. And he kind of lets the cat out of the bag here in verse 18. Look at this. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power too, so that, I, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. His full motive on display now. He defaults really to his old ways. And I told you those things would be a temptation for you. And for Simon, it was a very big temptation to try to recapture what he lost. He sees the following that the apostles have. He sees these guys sort of like rock stars. I mean, this is like a group that puts together Elvis, the Beatles, and Justin Bieber. They're all together in one group on one stage for one night only. I mean, you talk about pandemonium. But that's what is going on. These guys are just like that. If you're not a fan of any of those, I apologize. But Simon, he wants to be one of those folks. Even maybe just in a backup singer or backup dancer role. That, uh, he'll take that. He just wants to be a part of the show. And he's willing to pay some money to get a ticket. He's willing to pay some money to go backstage. He's willing to pay some money for a spot in the lights. His sinful desires, his ulterior motives come to light. He wants spiritual power, but for all the wrong reasons, and he's going about it in all the wrong ways. Here's a rich guy who figured, well, I, it's just a matter of money, isn't it? How much do I have to pay for that? I mean, everything has its price, right? Even this power that you guys seem to have, you've got to be able to put a price tag on it. Let's tell me how much it costs. I've got it. I'll pay for it, and all will be good. He's the guy who wants to give money and then expect God to do something in return on his terms or figures he can do whatever he wants or gives and feels entitled to certain privileges now in the people of God. You ever been there? You ever serve or give, or attend for years and years and years. And finally, you come to it one day and you say, you know what, I've been doing this, and it seems to have paid no dividend for me whatsoever. What's in it for me? Everybody's been there. I, I realize that here at Elm Grove, we don't have any of those kinds of people who have those mixed up motives every once in a while, right? But we, we have all been there. We've all thought from time to time, Lord, I, you know we're struggling a little bit. Things don't seem to be going as well. God, I guess maybe if I gave a little more, if I just showed up every single week at church, Lord, is that good enough? Is that, I mean, is that the fair trade? Is that what you're looking for from me? God, if I just serve, I mean, I see all those kids. I'm scared to death of kids, but I'll go over there. I'll venture out. What happens when they leave the room? I'm not sure, but I'll try it, Lord, and maybe that'll be the trigger. We've all done that. We're not really that much different from Simon and his motive here. We, we want to have some great things happen. We, we'd like spiritual power, and, and quite often, just like Simon, we're desperate to feel important, to appear powerful, to maybe regain our, our things that we lost. And so, like him, maybe we often try to use Jesus or religion to get those things back. It's amazing how many people do that. Amazing how many people do religious things for the wrong reasons. Simon's desire is to buy favors from God. And it's the culmination, really, of his mixed and ulterior motives. Peter's going to call him out. Look in verse 20. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, 
Now, in the, in the actual original language, and there's one version who translates it very, very well, basically what Simon tells him is, may you and all your money go straight to hell. That's what he tells him. Now, that sounds almost like I'm cursing, and I'm not. That's exactly what the Scripture... Now, our little version we're using this morning really waters it down. It says, uh, may your silver be destroyed with you. Well, what Simon is talking about, or what Peter is talking about is, buddy... Let me tell you how I feel about that. And let me tell you how the Holy Spirit feels about that. You, you are on some seriously thin ice, my friend. And that's what he tells him. In the original language, may you and all your money go straight to hell. Now, we can't figure the apostles would talk that way to somebody, but that's, what's, that's what Peter tells him. And he goes on. He says, you thought, here's why, because you thought the gift of God, this power, this spiritual power, could be obtained with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right with God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. He warns him. Here's, here's the path you're traveling down, Simon. If you don't turn around, guess what you're in danger of? Your, your mind is not right. You're, you're thinking things that aren't true. Your heart is not right. It's not in the right place. You're not going to get what you want because it's God's to give anyway. You're on really thin ice, and this is a bigger deal than you realize. So Peter tells him, your only hope, Simon, is to repent and to ask for God's forgiveness. Simon responds in verse 24, Please pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now, this may be somewhat genuine. We can see some traces of, of sincerity here. But there appears to be, first in his mind, this, this sort of ulterior motive of, I don't want to face that, so can you get me out of it? Can you help me not experience that kind of punishment that you're talking about? It may be as close as he comes to a decent motive, but, but let's be honest. Simply desiring to avoid eternal punishment misses the point of God's grace and His love. Now that certainly is part of it. But some here, this morning, were scared into claiming faith in Jesus. Somebody told you years ago that if you don't, then you're going to burn in hell for the rest of all eternity. And guess how long that is? Forever. They scared you into it. And that's the only message they told you was, turn or burn. They said, if you don't say these words or this prayer, then God's going to punish you forever. You realize that's only half the truth? You realize that, that absolutely that is true, that those who do not repent, surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, will suffer in hell for all eternity. That is absolutely biblical. It's absolutely true. But if that's the only message, the only motivation that a person has for following Jesus is to avoid that kind of punishment, then they're really never captured by His grace and His love and by who He is. And it's doubtful that they're following Jesus for the right reasons. And maybe they think, well, if I, if I just don't do these things, then I'll still be okay at the end of my life. And God won't punish me because I was better than I was bad. And maybe that's what it is. It's only half the message. And Simon seems to think that... Whew, I don't want to experience that. I mean, who would? Let's be honest. Nobody in their right mind in our world today would say, you know what? When I die, I'd like to go to hell. 
That's really what I want to experience. I've heard some stories about what it's going to be like. It's, it's complete punishment. That's what I'd like to do. I, the never-ending fire, sign me up. That's what I want. Nobody, everybody wants to go to heaven. But some folks will claim a faith that isn't real simply because they think it's a magic spell to avoid all of the punishment. Some were scared into professing Jesus. Somebody told you, and if you don't do this, then this is what's going to happen. And so you said that prayer. But the question is not, did you say the prayer? The question is, was there true repentance on your part? Was there complete surrender to Jesus? Did your mind and your heart change? Are you a different person? And let me tell you this, I'm not here to question anyone's salvation whatsoever. That's not for me to judge. It's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I can draw attention to what the Bible makes very clear. That if you look at your life and you say, at one point I prayed that prayer, at one point I was baptized, at one point I joined the church, and you look at your life and you say, but you know what? There was never a mind or heart or life change in me. If I'm in your shoes this morning, I would take a very, very serious look at whether that commitment was real. Whether that faith was truly in Jesus or whether it really was just to avoid some punishment or to make yourself feel better. Because if there wasn't true repentance, if there wasn't true life change, then it's quite possible that you just said some words. That you really didn't give your life to Jesus Christ through complete surrender. Now, I'm not trying to scare you this morning. I just want to be honest with you. You guys know by now I don't, I don't preach to you to scare you. I want you to know the truth, but I, I just want you to, to make sure that you, you do business this morning with the Holy Spirit. Have Him search you and say, Lord, is the commitment that I made years ago, was that real? And the Holy Spirit may absolutely confirm, yes, it is. Look at how different your heart and your mind are. Look at your difference in life. There was true repentance. Or maybe you say, you know what? <laughs> if I'm honest, there wasn't anything but a bunch of words I said. It didn't mean any of it. I was just going through the motions. And the warning for you then would be the same that Peter gave to Simon. You're on thin ice. I wouldn't leave here today without your mind and your heart being completely surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Simon is an example of somebody who followed Jesus just for himself. But there's another set of characters that are kind of subtly woven into this story that I want to touch on very briefly that show us the proper motives for following Jesus. We see the disciples. The disciples had several motives that, that we can emulate. One of which, the first of which that we see, was that they were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. They're convinced he's the Messiah. Uh, Philip is preaching. Look what it says there in verse 12. He proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, both men and women were baptized. Philip's preaching centered on the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And that's standard throughout the, the New Testament. The core of New Testament preaching is that Jesus came as the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins and He was raised again. That's the core and that's what they all preach. The person and the work of Jesus Christ. They truly believed He was who He said He was. They'd lived with Him, they'd walked around with Him, they'd seen Him crucified, they'd seen Him resurrected. They were convinced that Jesus is who He says He is. And so one of their motivations for following Him was because they actually believed that He was the Son of God. That He literally was who He said He was. 
They followed him because he was God, and life and salvation could be found nowhere else and in no other name. The Scripture tells us that. They followed him also because they see the grace of God break down every barrier that existed. The part there in in verse 12 where it says the men and women were baptized, that's huge, by the way. You realize that during this time, women were considered to be very, very, very second-class citizens, if even citizens at all. They, they were the property, essentially, of their husbands or their fathers. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, and I love the Gospel of Luke. By the way, he's the same guy who wrote the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke is really about this great reversal that Jesus brings. And he comes to the shepherds that were sort of the lowlifes of the time. He comes to the women. He comes to the outcasts, to the lepers, to the poor, to the sick. And he elevates them to the same status that the rich and the famous and the men have. So it's no accident here that we see the grace of God extended to women who are baptized. A big, big deal in the family of God. All of us stand on level ground. There is no one any better than another here. There is no one any worse than another in the family of God. And then the Holy Spirit, in verse 14, comes to the Samaritans. Now, there's a little bit of a delay here, and, and uh, the stuff that I read this week was honestly all over the place as to why the delay from the Holy Spirit. The one unifying factor from all the, the sources that I looked at was that there seems to be this desire on the part of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to make sure that the church, universally at least, not just every local church, but altogether, was united and that everybody understood there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. You realize the Samaritans, we, we have the story of the good Samaritan. You know how many good Samaritans there were according to the Jews? None. There weren't a single good Samaritan. That was, that was you talk about an oxymoron, you talk about something ironic, to call a, good, to call a Samaritan good, that didn't even make sense to the Jewish people. And so these folks were hated. They were disliked completely. And so when, when the grace of God breaks down this race barrier, and Peter and John go over there and they say, wow, this is legitimate, it was as if God is giving an official stamp of approval. Here are the apostles who have led, led the church in Jerusalem. Now they're going to Samaria, and they're uniting it all together. The grace of God breaking down every single barrier. Gender is not a problem anymore. Race is not a problem anymore. Money is not a problem anymore. Everybody is welcomed into the family of God. And Jesus had done all that for the disciples. You realize they were just ordinary guys. They were in many cases before they came to Jesus, like Matthew, the tax collector. They were uneducated. They, I mean, they didn't have degrees and all of that. They were full of pride. You know, even, even leading up to the cross, you know what the disciples are arguing about? Who's the best? Who's the best disciple? Look at me. I'm the greatest. I want to sit at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus. I'm the one who deserves that. They didn't always understand what Jesus taught them. You know, there are times Jesus gets frustrated with them. Basically calls them thick-headed. Don't you guys get it? And I've been walking with you now for three years. You don't understand? They they even denied that they knew Jesus. I mean, Peter, the guy in this story, he said, I don't even know who he is. You're crazy. I don't know him. They all ran away when he was arrested. And still... Despite all those barriers that even they erected, Jesus died for them. Breaking down every barrier that existed with His grace. And now the grace of God had reached even these hated Samaritans. Jesus had changed the the lives of the disciples. He had changed the world. And now He's changing the people that they never thought Jesus would want to even change. 
There was to be one body of Christ, united by the Holy Spirit. No barriers. There was no obstacle that the grace of God could not overcome. The disciples had seen that. And I want you to know this morning, there is no obstacle in your life based upon who you are, where you're from, what you do for a living, how much money you have or don't have, what you look like, the things you're good at, where you went to school, whatever it may be. There is no barrier, whether you were born with it or it's been made for you, that God cannot break down with His grace. There is no barrier. There is no barrier between you and Jesus Christ. He has done it all to bridge the gap. Every single thing. You don't have to be anything or be anybody to receive the grace of God. They had seen that, and and they had also experienced it, which is great. In verse 20, Peter begins to go off on Simon, and, and essentially he's telling him, you can't buy God's grace and the effects of it. You have no idea what you're talking about. This isn't something that you do enough ought-tos and should-haves and and God now loves you. This isn't something where you do enough religious activities and it cancels out all of your sin. Peter's telling me, you've got it all wrong. Instead, what he says is, look, let's just peel all that back. Let's take all that religious activity, all our ulterior motives, and what are we left with? Each one of us this morning, if we peel all the junk back, we're left with a a sinner that's hopelessly lost. But a sinner that's loved by the one against whom you've sinned. You've sinned against God, the Bible says. An offense to Him that deserves eternal punishment, but you are loved by God, the only one who can forgive you and cancel the debt. We're all hopelessly lost apart from the grace of God, and yet there He is loving us. You peel back all the religious layers and you see God come down from heaven, become a man, live a sinless life, die a death He didn't deserve, be raised again to seal the fate of all who will believe in Him. Life forever, beginning now and lasting for all eternity. You keep going and you see this incredible love. This undeserved grace, this free grace of God. No wonder Peter is so upset with Simon. You don't get it, he says. Quit trying to earn or to buy God's love. And I tell you the same message this morning. Quit. Quit trying to earn God's love. You can't do it. Quit trying to to buy God's love if that's the case. Or serve your way into God's love. Or talk your way into it. You can't do any of that stuff. It's garbage in front of God. Peter would tell him, look, all you need to do is repent and submit to him. Just believe in him with your entire being. And then he'll give you whatever role or whatever power he wants you to have. That's not even the focus. The disciples had been so captured by the grace of God that they were willing to follow Jesus because of it. Their motives also included telling anybody who would listen about the truth. Verse 25, I love this how it wraps it up. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. Uh, It's just incredible to me. That even those that they formerly hated, they had come in contact with the grace of God, and now part of their motivation is to see other people experience that too. It wasn't just for them. And when they go to Samaria, they don't just lay hands on the guys. Okay, let's get this over with. I guess God's moving over here too. I've got to get back to Jerusalem because I've got a meeting here in about 10 minutes. They're so excited to see God's grace come on other people. They're so excited to see them come to know the truth of Jesus Christ that that's what they want to leverage their entire lives for. 
And they do the most loving thing they could do for the Samaritans. They tell them about Jesus. Ultimately, their motive for following Jesus was because they loved Him. They didn't just like hanging around Him. They didn't just appreciate some of the things He taught. They loved Him, heart, soul, and strength. And that was the real reason that they followed Him. I've got one question this morning that I want to leave you with. I guess a question and then maybe a follow-up. But one question that you've been waiting on since you got your bulletin, and, and now's the time. One question. Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? We've looked at Simon. We've looked at these disciples. And now let's look at ourselves. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it for you? What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? What do I benefit from doing these religious things? Is it for you or is it for Him? Out of love for Him. Out of surrender. Out of a heart that's received and been changed by His grace. Why do you follow Jesus? For you or for Him? And I suppose the natural follow-up to that is why don't you follow Jesus? You say, oh, this sermon isn't for me. I don't consider myself a follower of Christ. I, I just showed up at church. Somebody asked me to come. I said, you know, I'll be there. Why don't you follow Jesus? You realize that you are His creation, the object of His love, the reason He died a death He didn't deserve. His offer is love that you can't earn, and you don't have to. His offer is, is forgiveness of the sins that you've committed against Him. His offer is freedom from the penalty and the power of those sins. Why don't you follow Jesus? He is life and He is breath to those who believe. Why don't you? Don't leave here this morning without answering those two questions. Why, why do you follow Jesus? Are your motives pure? Are you in it for yourself or in it for Him? And if the other one is more applicable, why don't you follow Jesus? Why not today? Surrender it all to Him. For those with ulterior motives, or those who are not following Jesus, the message is the same that Peter gave to Simon. Repent. Repent. Turn today to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. As I mentioned, we'll have a couple of our deacons. Jerry and Bill will be standing down here. Certainly available for anybody who says, you know what, this morning I, I just need to talk to somebody about where I stand spiritually. I'm just not sure. Or I've got an issue in my life that may or may not pertain to what you were preaching on this morning, but I just want somebody to pray for me. Or I'm struggling and I, and I need some help from somebody who knows the Lord very well and isn't perfect, but will help me. Or you say, I've got questions about, we talked about baptism, I've got questions about that or... Or about joining the church or whatever. These guys will be available for you to pray with you, to talk with you. And this morning, maybe there's not a very clear action step that says, you go and do this when you leave here. But this morning, I want you to wrestle. You and the Holy Spirit to wrestle with the question, why do you follow Jesus? And to leave here having answered that question, not because of me, but because of Him, because I love Him. 
if you say, I need the other question, why don't I follow Jesus? Maybe today you'd say, you know what, I'm not leaving here without surrendering my heart and my life to Jesus Christ in faith, believing who He says He is, and receiving His free gift of salvation for my sin. God, we're thankful to have seen Your Word this morning. Lord, help us to be to be serious about answering those questions this morning. I pray for those who need to come and talk with Bill or Jerry. I pray, Lord, You'd give them boldness and courage to get out of their seat and to come to where they are and to pray and to talk. Lord, for those this morning who simply just need to wrestle right there in their seats, why do I follow Jesus? Lord, I pray You remove distractions so they can do that. Lord, for the person this morning who says, I'm not even sure if I do, I pray, God, this morning will be the day of their salvation. The day when they first believe in Jesus Christ and have their lives changed for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, that your motives toward us are always pure. Make ours towards you the same way. We pray in Jesus' name.